you all. I'll bet you there's not too many churches in Tulsa, Oklahoma, where the singing and the worship and the prayers and everything, and, the, and then the sermon was done in a cave. It kind of gives us a feeling of what the early church must have been like, right? Meeting in a cave. Uh, there may, maybe there's some churches around the world that still meet in caves, but kind of a special treat for us, and let's remember this week, all of us, to be in prayer, um, whether you're here or not, for the upcoming VBS. Now, many of us, maybe most of us, are deeply troubled by the direction our culture is going. The interesting thing about this is that the things that trouble us about what's happening in our world and in our culture are really only symptoms. They're just the tip of the iceberg. We get worked up about things like abortion and gay marriage and transgender bathrooms and the like. And I'm not saying these things aren't important. You've heard from this pulpit, from other elders, and from me how important some of these issues are. But again, they're only symptoms of a deeper issue. Here's the reality that Paul tells us about in Romans. All have sinned. No one is righteous. No, not one. But the root goes deeper than even that truth from Scripture. How do we know all have sinned? And who gets to define what sin is and what sin isn't? We could think of specific verses in the Bible that are really offensive if we were to read them to anybody in, a, in the midst of some of our cultural conversations. In our current culture, perhaps this is one that's offensive. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. It says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality. That verse kind of covers some of the issues that concern Christians as our culture casts off all restraints. Or how about this verse? This is an offensive one. John chapter 14, verse 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. The gall. The gall. How can we believe such an exclusive thing? Isn't that marginalizing? Isn't that discriminating against anyone who believes there are many paths to God? Or how about no God at all? Isn't one of the standards of our culture how inclusive that we are supposed to be? Yet here's Jesus telling us there's only one way to God, and he's it. But even that verse is only built on the foundation of what one writer called the most offensive thing that I believe. Now let's think about this. The truth is it should be the most offensive thing that all of us as Christians believe. And I hope we'll see that as we move along this morning. When we talk about things in our culture that are getting us all worked up, things like gay marriage, LGBT anything, or a host of other disputed issues in our culture, this writer says this, you're just nibbling at the edge of one of the relatively minor leaves on the tree of offense. Let me do you a favor and just take you right down to the root. Let me take you to the most offensive thing I believe. The most offensive thing I believe is Genesis 1-1 and everything it implies. The everything it implies is what's critical today. So let's think about that together this morning. The most offensive things, the things that are offensive to our culture, that is, are all rooted in, they are all based on the reality 
that we read in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning, God created. In the beginning, God created. Because there is a creator, because he is master of all, he gets to define everything. It's his right because he made it all. Everything in the universe, the planets, the laws of physics, the laws of nature, and the laws of morality, right and wrong, life and death, everything we see was created by God. It was designed by God. It was assigned definition by God. It was given value by God. If this is true, if we believe this, then we are mere creatures. And our meaning, our purpose, our value, all these things and everything else are defined by him. They are dependent on him. We are subject to his will. We are not free to create meaning or value apart from him, apart from his plans, apart from his purposes. Because of this, we have only two options. We can discover the true value assigned by the Creator and revealed in His Word, the Bible, or we can rebel against that meaning. That's the gist of this morning's message. And if you remember nothing else this morning, that's what I want you to remember. If we believe in a Creator God, we must discover His plans and purposes that are revealed by Him in His Word, our Bible. Because He's the Creator, it's his world to define in terms of meaning and value. Now, we can, of course, reject God as creator. We can believe that we are all descendants of some random process, and after billions of years, pretty much by accident of nature, we came out of the primordial soup or the ooze and eventually developed into human beings. Now, that's essentially what a materialist or a Darwinist worldview believes. But if we do accept that as the story of our origins, then we have to realize all of the other things that we are rejecting. If in the beginning there was no pre-existent God who created everything we see out of nothing, then think about this too. Here's an implication. There was no Adam and Eve. No Adam about whom Genesis tells us in chapter 1, verse 27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. In Genesis 2, 7, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. The Creator breathed life into Adam. The Creator created us in his own image. And he created us male and female. Now think about it. Anybody see the difference between believing this and not believing this and how this might impact our worldview? How might this cause us to think differently than so much of the world? If we believe what we just read from Genesis, how it might be offensive to believe these things from Genesis and all those beliefs imply. The same creator breathes life into each one of us, which is why all life, born and unborn, has meaning and value, and we are not free to decide who lives and who dies. 
based on anything but the meaning that God assigns to life. We're not free to decide who's male or female. God created them, Scripture tells us, male and female. Now, just a word here about the whole transgender thing, and it's related very specifically to what we're looking at this morning. I learned a new word in my study this week, teleology. Anybody ever heard that word? Okay, well, we're going to learn it this morning. Classical Greek and Christian philosophy both regarded the world as created with a purpose, driven by purpose, or teleological, from the Greek telos, meaning purpose or goal. For example, there's no debate that eyes are made for seeing, right? That's why we have eyes, isn't it? Ears are for hearing. Fins are for swimming. Wings are for flying. These things were all created for a specific purpose. Because the human body is part of nature, it too was regarded as having a purpose. The diversity of male and female was not some cosmic accident. Instead, it showed that the human body is ordered to the purpose of opposite sex pair bonding and reproduction. Teleology is the basis for natural law ethics, which aims to tell us how to fulfill our true nature, how to become fully human. Today, it's popular among Western elites to deny teleology. The key turning point was Charles Darwin. He did not deny that nature appears to be designed for a purpose, but as an agnostic, he hoped to use science to demonstrate that the appearance of design was the result of purposeless material process, random variations sifted by the blind automatic forces of natural selection. As historian Jacques Barzun writes, this denial of purpose is Darwin's distinctive contention. This is where this stuff's come from. So the Darwinian worldview supposes that the universe is just a big amoral machine, reducing our human bodies to just a lump of matter. Not really that much different from any other chance configuration of matter. Just so happens that this matter turned into Bill Sullivan, and this matter is the pulpit, and this matter is the cup from which I will now take a drink. It's all the same. So there's no such thing as a natural law ethic if you follow this worldview because humanity has no purpose to fulfill. In this worldview, our biological identity as male and female is truly a cosmic accident. Doesn't have any special meaning, doesn't have any special dignity. These are the philosophical underpinnings of the whole transgender movement. That's why we see language like the Department of Justice letter a few weeks ago in which it was written, a person's gender identity may be different from the person's sex assigned at birth. The important word to note here is assigned. In this context, the word assumes that a person's maleness or femaleness is purely arbitrary instead of a scientific, observable, biological fact. Biological facts don't matter. What you think you are is the only thing that counts. It's a clear consequence of a denial of a creator God. It's a denial of what we read in Genesis. God created them male and female. There is a reality that we live in a fallen world. That's something else that Genesis tells us. And we'll take a look at that in just a moment. 
And while Genesis tells us that God created them male and female, it also recognizes our rebellion against God's standards and against God's plan. So while male is male and female is female in God's plan, and that's an implication of believing in a creator God as portrayed in Genesis, that doesn't mean that we should have no compassion for those who in this fallen world struggle with gender identity. It doesn't mean that any more than the fact that though scripture clearly declares homosexual behavior to be sin, we have a responsibility to love those who are caught in any kind of sin. We are to lovingly, compassionately lead them to the foot of the cross, the same place we had to go to take care of our sin, right? The forgiveness purchased for us in the death of Christ. So in our dismay at the direction that the culture is going, let's be very careful what we say. Let's be very careful how we say it related to these issues while still standing firm in what Scripture teaches. We read about the fall in Genesis 3. That rebellion means that we are all in need of God's redemption. Genesis also lays the groundwork for God's redemptive plan. That's the cool thing we're going to see here in just a minute. And the first hint of that is when God was cursing the tempter. You remember the serpent tempted Adam and Eve, the serpent who tempted Eve to rebel against God's clear command. It says this in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. I will put enmity, enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. There's a significant fact of redemption here. There's enmity or hostility between people and the enemy of our souls. But scripture also tells us that the woman's offspring, he, will crush the serpent's head. Of course, the he referred to here is Jesus. Verse 15 has been labeled the proto-evangelium. Isn't that a cool word? That is, it's the first announcement we see in scripture of the gospel. Right here in Genesis. Right here at the moment of the fall, God wasn't surprised, was he? When original sin invaded the perfect world that God had created, we see the good news of God's redemption in Christ first announced right here. The serpent isn't seen as a mere snake, the story here implies. The snake speaks, it tempts, it deceives. While this chapter of Genesis doesn't explicitly identify the serpent with Satan, it's a very legitimate deduction for us to make, especially when we see it in the light of what Apostle John has in mind when he wrote this in Revelation chapter 12, verse 9. So the great dragon was thrown out, the ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the one who deceives the whole world. He was thrown to earth and his angels with him. So Satan deceived the whole world when he deceived Adam and Eve, but it doesn't end there. By referring to he and his in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, we know that the intended meaning is that one particular offspring is in view. Within the larger biblical framework, this hope comes to fulfillment in Jesus Christ, who is clearly presented in the New Testament as overcoming Satan while at the same time being bruised. Isn't that cool? To make this connection from the moment of the fall, but the gospel was announced. Are we beginning to see 
how critical Genesis is to the whole story of redemption? Can we see how not believing in a creator God or in the Genesis account of creation affects everything else about our faith? There is no Christian faith without Genesis. There is no need for Jesus without Genesis, without God's creating us in his image, without Adam and Eve, without the fall. It's foundational for our whole life in Christ. Of course, we sinful humans have been rebelling ever since the creation. That's why we can say this morning that we have a creation foundation. Genesis changes everything. If Genesis 1-1 and the key verses that follow are true, then it must define how we view the world from here on. If God is the creator, and if he's so present in his creation and involved with his creation that he has gone so far as to have human beings bear his image, it changes everything about how we view the world, everything about how we respond to what this creator reveals about himself, about life, about right and wrong, about his redemptive plan for us. It gives him absolute authority in everything in our lives. We are his creation after all. We are not ultimate creators, though of course we're made in his image. So we have the God-given privilege of reflecting his creativity. If God is the creator, then it's wrong to worship creation, including ourselves, instead of the creator. That's the very definition of idolatry. Ultimately, this relates to morality. Most moral issues force us to decide if we will respect or even worship our own ideas of right or wrong. Or will we submit to the wisdom of the one who created us? You know, we have a sort of owner's manual in the Word of God, don't we? We reject its instructions at our own peril. Just as much as we put at risk any purchase, anything you can think about buying, if it comes with an owner's manual and you ignore that owner's manual that came with it, you're going to have the same kind of problems you have if you reject what is in the Word of God. Judges chapter 17, verse 6. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. I don't know about you, but I think this is one of the most sobering verses in all of Scripture. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. It's a result of rejecting or rebelling against our Creator God, who by virtue of being the Creator of everything we see has a clear and compelling right to prescribe for us what is right in his eyes, the plans and purposes for which he has created us. It's all for our ultimate good anyway. It's not just to keep us from having fun. Isn't that what some people complain about, Christian faith? Boy, you can't have any fun. It's incumbent on us to discover this in his word, to bow to, to submit to his lordship. What's more, if there is a creator God, then creation has a purpose. There's meaning. There's meaning. One writer noted that every controversial issue that evangelicals are at odds with secular society over can be traced back to the concept of creator and creation. There's an old joke that illustrates just how radical and transformative that this concept of creation and creator is. I'm guessing many of you have heard this joke, so if you've heard it in one form or another, just 
kind of bear with me. God was once approached by a scientist who said, listen, God, we've decided we don't need you anymore. These days we can clone people, we can transplant organs, we can do all sorts of things that used to be considered miraculous. God replied, don't need me, huh? How about we put your theory to the test? Why don't we have a competition to see who can make a human being, a male human being? The scientist agrees. So God said, let's do it like I did it in the good old days when I created Adam. Fine, says the scientist, and he bends down to scoop up a handful of dirt. Oh, God says, whoa, no, no, sorry, not so fast. Make your own dirt. When your worldview is materialism, that is, there's no room for the supernatural creative activities of a creator God, then there is no original dirt. You can make your own meaning, your own path, your own plans, your own purposes. So if materialism is your worldview, it's really quite reasonable. If you think that way, it's quite reasonable to accept gay marriages, to accept plural marriages, any kind of sexual immorality. You make your own meaning. What does it matter? An occultist named Alistair Crowley hit it pretty well, and he said, Do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. It's like what we just read in Scripture. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. You are your own boss, your own authority. It's that radical autonomy that we looked at just a few weeks back. So if we are followers of Christ, and if we accept the view that Scripture presents of a creator God intimately involved in the world he created, then the clash we have with a secular worldview is pretty much inevitable. With a Genesis-believing worldview, for example, marriage is sacred because of the symbolism of God's purpose and because it is a way to redeem his creation from the fall. Sex is sacred because of its relation to the way creatures are supposed to act out of God's relationship to us. Unborn babies are sacred because bearing the image of God does not depend on stage of development, just which species. Genesis presents the creation story as more than just a nice story. It presents the creation story as the account of the God who is. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. He was there before the beginning of time. As we know it, Genesis presents not everything there is to know about creation, but it does present everything we need to know. That's the story with all of Scripture, if you think about it. Does Scripture answer every question we have? Anybody here have found an answer to every question you've ever had in Scripture? Clearly not, right? In fact, because God made us to be inquisitive, creative creatures, Scripture often causes us to ask even more questions than it answers. Because we believe the Word of God to be inspired by God, sometimes we think of this infallible text in the Word, we think it will be just as omniscient as its divine author, knowing and telling us everything there is to know. And as a result, we look to Genesis for answers to questions that the book is not trying to answer. Consequently, one's natural curiosity must be correctly channeled. For the inspired author of Genesis intentionally communicates only certain things. Yet the text does not cease to be the word of God simply because it is limited in what it tells the reader. It need not be exhaustive in order to be true. For example, I could tell you I was born in Pittsburgh. 
I was an ordained as an elder at TCF in 1996, same day as Dave Troutman. I earned a bachelor's degree of science in telecommunications in 1978. That's not all there is to know about me. There's a few other things I could tell. But in some contexts, that may be all you need to know. And even though it's not all there is to know, all the things I told you are still true. We are encouraged to rest in the God who reveals himself in Scripture. Because even though the world doesn't tell us everything there is to know, it does tell us everything that we need to know. What is clear that we need to know in Genesis? Why is it important for our overall faith? Genesis tells us that God was there in the beginning. He preceded creation as we know it. It tells us that God created everything we see. We don't know all the details, but his creative power was such that he spoke things into existence. Genesis tells us he created we human beings in his image. We're the only things, think about that, we're the only things in creation created in the image of God. That makes us special. I'm sorry, it's true. That just makes us special, us human beings. And it's also why the little boy in the Cincinnati Zoo was saved a few weeks ago, you saw that on the news, at the expense of the life of the gorilla, as unfortunate as that death may be. Human beings are more special than gorillas. God created the world and all that we enjoy, but mankind rebelled against that kindness and provision and brought sin into the world. A rebellious choice that echoes throughout the millennia and it impacts our world and our lives to this very day. And finally, God already had in place a plan to redeem us and the serpent would not have the last laugh. What we believe about Genesis really does matter. As we've seen, if we live in an exclusively material world and we don't accept the account of Genesis that God is, God creates, then human life, yours and mine, is absolutely meaningless. No matter how sincere and passionate we are about anything, no matter how great our accomplishments, no matter what side of history we choose. How many times have you heard that? That we are on the wrong side of history. It doesn't matter. It's all pointless. All of this world's going to turn to dust because the universe will eventually become extinct. When we die, it's just over. It's just over. And Kwong, would you make sure we have audio coming out of the computer because I have a piece of video I forgot to warn you about. When we die, it's just over. It's meaningless. And we will find no hope or meaning there. If the universe were just electrons and selfish genes, meaningless tragedies like the crashing of the bus are exactly what we should expect, along with equally meaningless good fortune. In a universe of blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt. Do you want that kind of meaninglessness at your graveside service? I played this video before in a sermon a couple years back, but I thought it was particularly appropriate because of the book from which the person at the graveside was reading. Did anybody notice the title? 
It was called River Out of Eden. It was by noted atheist Richard Dawkins, who clearly subscribes to the materialist kind of worldview that we were looking at, a picture of a meaningless material world without hope, without God. But if there is a creator God, then his creation can reflect his character. His creation can reveal his purposes. Our lives have meaning only because we are created by God, only because we are created in his image. And this world becomes a way that we can know that God is. We can be the reasoning, imaginative, and creative persons that we believe ourselves to be. How we understand ourselves in the world around us determines the kind of life we make. The early Christians showed us this as they swabbed the foreheads of plague victims. Whether we believe that God is affects not only our families and our culture, but world history. Think about it. Everything, everything we think about sexuality, about relationships, about right and wrong is drawn from what the Creator says about it. Believing this is the most important thing we believe. It's also the most offensive thing we believe. So why should we quibble about the minor offenses that we get in conflict with in our culture? Let's go right to the root. God's God, and I'm not. Or as it's stated in another video, Kwong, let's have that audio ready to go again. This is perhaps the most profound theological statement ever made in a Hollywood movie. I don't care what kind of job I did. If it doesn't produce results, it doesn't mean anything. I think you'll discover that it will. Maybe I haven't prayed enough. <laughs> I'm sure that's not the problem. Praying is something we do in our time. The answers come in God's time. Have I done everything I possibly can? Can you help me? Son, in 35 years of religious studies, I've come up with only two hard, incontrovertible facts. There is a God, and I'm not him. There is a God, and I'm not him. God is God, and I am not. Amen? That's what we get from creation. That's what we get from Genesis. That's why Genesis changes everything when we accept that, when we believe that. And we, you know, had the chance there to see uh, Samwise before he was uh, with Frodo. But again, I think that's a very th profound theological statement. There is a God, and I'm not him. And it's at the root of so many of our issues in our culture. Amen? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the foundation that we have in the book of Genesis. We thank you that you are indeed the creator God. We thank you that you created us male and female. You created us in your image. And because of that, we are your special creation. We thank you, Father, that you've also given us stewardship over creation. Father, we recognize we are special because we are the only part of your creation that is made in your image. Pray that you'd help us to live up to that, Lord. Help us to follow the owner's manual. Help us to let you be God and not 
have to be our own gods, Father, making our own decisions. Father, thank you that you've given us your word that enables us, Father, to know your will, to know your plans, to know your purposes. Help us to discover those things more and more as we live out this Christian life, Father God. We're grateful that you loved us enough, that you had a plan of redemption in place, even at the very moment of the fall. We thank you for these truths, Lord. Help us to ponder these truths. Help us to cling to these truths in the midst of a culture that doesn't believe them and is living the inevitable results, the inevitable consequences of a worldview that rejects a creator God that gets to define everything about who we are, what's right and wrong, and our plans and our purposes and the meaning of this life. We thank you that we can rest in you, Lord. Help us to do that, we pray in Jesus' name.